Well, hey, good morning, River Glen. Welcome. Welcome to all of you here in Waukesha. Welcome to everybody who's watching online or uh, listening to our podcast. And of course, a great big super welcome to all my friends watching over in Pewaukee this morning. Hey, I want to share some news with you and with all of you. God has been doing some crazy, amazing things over in Pewaukee. We actually broke a record last weekend. Last weekend, we saw the biggest single weekend attendance we've had in two years. How cool is that? Proud to serve with you guys. Can't wait to share Easter with you this coming weekend. Well, if we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Jason, and I serve as one of the pastors on staff here. Obviously, I get to serve as the pastor of our campus over in Pewaukee. Uh, many years ago, my wife and I were attending a great church out in Los Angeles. And one time, they did a series called 30 Days to Live. And on the last weekend, we walked in, and they had a giant number two painted on the back of the stage. And the pastor comes out, and he starts describing... Everything that he would do if he knew he only had two days left to live. Kind of a heavy thought, right? Well, he began saying all the stuff that, you know, you would expect him to say. He's going to spend time with his wife and his daughters, that kind of thing. But then he said something that kind of caught me by surprise. He said, if I knew I only had two days left to live, I would preach on Luke 15 one more time. And I thought, hmm, Luke 15, okay. I was still kind of new in my faith back then. I, I, I didn't know. Apparently, Luke 15 is a really big deal. Well, that moment was many years ago, and I never forgot it. And I have read that chapter many times, and apparently he was right. Luke 15 might be one of the most powerful and profound chapters in the whole Bible. I encourage you this week, write it down and read it. It will rock your world. Luke 15 is also the foundation for the series we've been in the last few weeks called Prodigal. And today, we are going to land this series, we're going to wrap it up by taking a look at our third and final character in this story. And like all great trilogies, right, this last installment should connect all the dots and answer all the questions. Now, regardless of where you're at in your faith, if you're brand new in your faith or you've been doing this a really long time, hopefully, what we talk about today should bring this chapter into a whole new light. At the very, very least, I can promise you, it will be better than Godfather Part 3. <laughs> Wasn't that an awful movie? Gosh, what were they thinking, <laughs> right? Well, let's dive in. I want to start by asking you a question. Is it possible to be really good at something and yet still somehow miss the mark? I mean, imagine if you were really good at like a sport or a skill, maybe even one of the best in the world. Is it possible to still be that good and somehow miss you know, the purpose or the bigger picture of things? You tracking with me? Let me give you an example. In 2004 at the Olympic Games, there was a sharpshooter by the name of Matthew Emmons. And he was one of the best in the world, best of the best in his sport. He'd already won a gold medal at that particular Olympics. And he was in line on this next event, already had a huge lead, and was basically guaranteed to win another gold medal. And then the unthinkable happened. Some of you know this story. Matthew got in position for his final shot. He aimed, he fired, he hit the target, but he hit the target in his competitor's lane. He hit the wrong target. He instantly went from first place to eighth place and lost what would have been his second gold medal. Devastating, right? So I guess maybe you can be really, really good at something and somehow miss the mark. If we agree to that, then let me ask you a very sensitive question. How good are you at being a Christian? If you're here today or you're in Pewaukee or you're watching online, if you would call yourself a Christian, what if today was your annual review? 
and we brought you in to have a discussion about your performance as a follower of Jesus, how would you be feeling right now? It's really quiet in here. <laughs> Trust me, I'd be just as nervous too, right? We're all in the same boat. I would imagine, and we, we would never do this, but I would imagine if we were going to sit down and actually analyze our lives to the teachings and model of Jesus, I bet we'd probably all land somewhere in the middle of this spectrum, right? On the one hand, you have a criminal. This is someone whose life is completely out of control, total disregard for morals and values. I'm guessing that's not any of us, right? But on this other side, you have a Pharisee. And a Pharisee is a Bible word. It describes an actual person. The Pharisees were the religious leaders and the teachers of the law back in Jesus' day. These guys were career Christians, the best of the best. These guys were known for meticulously keeping every single law in the Old Testament. And they even made up a couple hundred of their own just to prove a point, right? They, they were untouchable. Couldn't mess with these guys. So most of us, if we were going to examine our report card as a Christian, I'm going to guess we're somewhere here in the middle. Not a criminal, but nowhere near a Pharisee. Am I right? Well, here's what's interesting about this example. Luke 15 describes a night a couple thousand years ago where both of these groups of people were in the same room at the same time. You can imagine the tension in that room, right? For some of you, this reminds you of your last family holiday. <laughs> Let's dive in and see what Luke says about this night. Luke chapter 15, starting at verse 1. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. We're going to pause just for a second and appreciate how incredible that statement is. The tax collectors and the sinners, these are the criminals that we just talked about in that previous example, were all gathered around to hear Jesus because they wanted to. That's fascinating. There's something remarkable about Jesus that people who were nothing like him liked him and actually wanted to hang out with him. These are the guys that would never go to church, but they actually liked Jesus and wanted to hear him and be around him. They didn't feel excluded, they feel included, and they felt welcomed. The Bible uses words like marveled and astonished to describe how these guys felt when they heard Jesus teach. So you think about how incredible this moment is. This should hit home for a lot of us because a lot of us have someone in our life who we love so dearly and we want so badly to meet Jesus and experience the peace and the purpose that comes from following him. So really, this moment should be celebrated, right? But, there's always a but. Verse number two. But the Pharisees, these guys we talked about a minute ago, and the teachers of the law muttered, which is just a great word. I challenge you to use that word this week. Muttered. It means complaint. It means gossiped, right? They muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The Pharisees and the religious leaders weren't happy about being in the same room as these other guys. And they were even less happy about the fact that Jesus, who was perceived as a leader, was spending time with them as well. But verse number three is the key that unlocks this whole chapter. If we get verse number three right, everything from here on out begins to make perfect sense. Verse number three just says, then Jesus told them this parable. Now, here's the, here's the critical detail we got to pay attention to. Who is them in that sentence? The them he's talking to are the religious leaders and the teachers of the law, the Pharisees. The other guys are in the room. They all get a chance to hear it. But make no mistake, his eyes are in the back of the room focused specifically on the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And what's interesting is that th this isn't the first time this happened. You want to hear something really fascinating. In all four 
gospel accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the only people that Jesus ever argued with were church people. Isn't that interesting? Scripture records 77 times where Jesus got into a direct argument with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Why would he do this? Here's why. Because somewhere along the line, these guys missed something significant. Over time in their faith journey, they began aiming at the wrong target. Somebody once said that some people have been Christians so long, they forgot what it feels like to be forgiven. That would certainly describe these guys, right? The Pharisees, these guys all would have gotten A's on their report card, but they missed the mission. And so Jesus tells them three stories back to back to begin to challenge them and get them to change their thinking. The first story starts in verse 4, and it's a story about a shepherd with some sheep. Jesus says, imagine if a shepherd had 100 sheep and he lost one. I know that's kind of an old school example, so let me, let me kind of contextualize it for you. It would be the equivalent today if Jesus said, imagine there was a Harley Davidson dealer and he had 100 Harley Davidsons on the lot and he lost one. Would that be a big deal? Would that be significant, right? You bet your saddlebags it would. This would be a big deal. Well, Jesus says, would not the shepherd leave the 99 who aren't lost to go and find the one that is lost and when he finds it, wouldn't he be so happy he would throw a party? I know that's a little bit of hyperbole, but you get the point he's trying to make. He punctuates this story with this great line. He says this, verse 7, I tell you in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. That's a big statement, right? Jesus basically just drew the line in the sand with that statement. He goes on to tell another story, verses 8 through 10. Only th this is also a story about something lost. Only this time, a woman has 10 coins, 10 valuable coins, and she loses one. Jesus says she tore her whole house apart till she found it. And when she found it, what did she do? She bought crypto, and she hoped for the best. No. <laughs> Jesus said she found it. She was so happy, she threw a party. And again, he gives us the same challenge. Verse 10, in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So we're starting to get kind of the idea here. Something gets lost, then it gets found, and then we throw a party. Pretty simple, right? But what is more valuable than sheep and coins? People. So then the question becomes, what happens when a person gets lost? Well, this next story Jesus tells is what Charles Dickens called the greatest story ever told. Starting in verse 11, Jesus begins his third story like this. There was a man who had two sons. Now, this is a critical detail because, as we said all the way back in week one, sometimes Luke 15 is mistakenly called the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son. The reality is the father in the story had two sons. And this is significant because Jesus tells the story this way because he is standing in a room with two groups of people. All the criminals up front, sorry to all of you in the front row here, <laughs> and all the religious people in the back. And remember, who is he speaking to? Who was them? All the guys in the back of the room. And so Jesus makes this very obvious for them. And here's a key for all of us to understand any of Jesus' parables. Anytime Jesus tells a parable, and he tells a lot of them through the Gospels, we're supposed to read it and ask two questions. Who is God and who am I? 
You think about the characters in these stories. Who is the God figure in these stories? And in Luke 15, it's real easy. He's the father in the story, right? Well, the second question, who am I? Well, that gives all of us two choices. There's a younger brother and there's an older brother. And as Don said in week one when we began this series, all of us, every one of us and every one of us watching online and unfortunately all my friends in Pewaukee, we've all been the younger brother at some point. Maybe we weren't a criminal, but we've all gone our own way. So Jesus begins this story talking about the younger brother, and he describes how this younger brother demanded his inheritance up front and then took off with the money. And you got to understand, in that day and age, in that culture, that would have been a huge slap in the face. Now, there's a Will Smith joke in there somewhere. I ain't even going to touch it, though. We're just going to move on. <laughs> but seriously, though, for the younger brother to ask for this would have been the equivalent of him looking his father in the face and saying, I don't need you. I don't want you. I don't even like you anymore. Give me my money. I'm out of here. And he took the money and he ran. And the scripture calls what he did wild living, which is basically the equivalent of sex, drugs, and rock and roll times 10. Jesus actually, if you go back and you read the story, I think it's interesting. He got pretty explicit in the details of some of the choices that this younger brother made. I think he does that so that for all of us who read it, we can understand you couldn't get any more lost than this younger brother. He didn't just kind of mess up. This kid flew off the rails. He blew it. Eventually, he hits rock bottom. He realizes that his way didn't work out. And he makes the hard decision to get up, go back home, and return to his father. Now, the biblical word for that, that moment is he repented. And to repent just simply means to turn around, to choose a new direction, to follow God's direction for your life. Psalm 119.59 is a beautiful description of this moment. It says this, I pondered the direction of my life, and then I turned to follow your laws. So the younger brother repents. He turns to follow God's direction and go back home. And it was a long journey home, as you can imagine. Big question for you. What do you think happened when he got there? I mean, based on the first two stories, right? What happens when lost things are found? We throw a party. But whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. This kid blew it. He was a disgrace. By some standards in the old law, he should have been put to death for the decisions he made. But this is where this story gets so good, you guys. This is what Ben talked about last week. We spent a whole message talking about the heart of the father and how beautiful his reaction was to his son when he came home. This reaction was really the motivation behind some of the detail in Rembrandt's painting. Rembrandt actually painted a picture called The Return of the Prodigal. We spent a whole message on this last week talking about this. If you missed last week, you got to go back and watch it. This is Rembrandt's painting, and there's all these fascinating details about this, this painting. One in particular is how bright the father is. This is the father in the, in the painting. Notice how bright he is compared to everybody else. Do you know why he did that? It's because Rembrandt wanted to showcase. He wanted to put a spotlight on how the father reacted when his son came home. So how did the father react? Jesus said, the father kept his eyes on the road. He was standing by the window, watching and waiting for this son to come home. And when he saw him, even when he was way far off down the road, he saw him, he busted out of the house, and he ran to him. And when he finally got to him, he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. And he gave him his robe, and he gave him his ring, and he shouted out loud, everybody, hey, <laughs> my, my 
my son came home. My son came home. And they walked back in the house arm in arm. And Jesus said the father threw the biggest party the son had ever seen. Verse 23, the father speaking, says, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. So they began to celebrate. And in that moment, 2,000 years ago, as Jesus is in this room with these two groups of people telling this story, you could have heard a pin drop. Every eye in the front row would have been in tears. Jesus' point was clear. God's heart breaks for lost people. He celebrates when lost people come home. He's, he's pleased with our performance, but he throws parties when people come home. And to be honest with you, most people just end the story right there because it's a happy ending, right? A beautiful homecoming of a rebellious child. Makes a great Hallmark movie, right? makes a great song. But remember, the father had two sons because Jesus is standing in a room with two groups of people. So Jesus ain't done yet. He goes on, verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Now, a little bit of context here. The older son would have been the firstborn of the family, which back then was a big deal. It was like number two in charge of the whole family. He was set to receive two-thirds of the family estate, right? This would have been an A student, hard worker, very responsible, always got everything right, never got out of line kind of kid. And understand, he would have been absolutely disgusted at his younger brother. He'd have been happy he was gone. So the last thing on earth this older brother would have expected that day was to hear a party, much less a party for this punk younger brother of his. And the next two verses are where we get a chance to see the true heart and the true character of the older brother. We already got to see the father's heart a minute ago. Now we get to see who this older brother really is. This is what happened. Your your older brother has come home. Or your younger brother has come home, he replied, one of the servants. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. But the older brother became angry and he refused to go in. I want you to see the contrast here, right? And it's not the contrast that you think. This isn't a contrast between the younger brother and the older brother, right? That's obvious. We all get that. What isn't so obvious, what I think Jesus is driving at here is the contrast between the older brother and the father because it's clear that their hearts were in two different places. And now we begin to see why this is a story of two lost sons, Because the father had two sons. He had a rebellious son who ran away. But then he also had a religious son who refused to come back in. And you got to see, both our religion and our rebellion have the power to pull us away from the father. Both our rebellion and our religion can destroy the relationship we have with him if we don't pay attention. But I love the next line in this story. Once again, Jesus is just spotlighting the heart of the father, always on the heart of the father. He says this, so the father went out and pleaded with him. Once again, the father leaves the house to go out and find one of his lost sons. And he pleads with him to come into the party. You got to think, really, this is exactly what Jesus is doing in that moment with those two groups of people. 
He is pleading with the religious leaders in the back of the room to change their hearts, to wake up and get the picture. He's inviting them, guys, come to the celebration, join the mission. They don't seem very interested. (laughs) And the older brother didn't either. Instead, the older brother takes the opportunity to justify his anger. Listen to this rant. Verse 29, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not my brother anymore, this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you killed the fattened calf for him? Come on! Here's what we all got to pay attention to. The longer we are Christians, the more likely we are to start sounding like the older brother. This, you guys, this is why nobody reads the second half of the story. (laughs) Because it's convicting. It's challenging, right? It slaps us right in the face with reality. Here's the challenge of our faith. The challenge of our faith is to stop being the rebellious younger brother without becoming the self-righteous older brother. But to stay right here in the sweet spot in the middle in relationship with the father. So that means that all of us, at some point in our faith journeys, have to just stop and take a look at our hearts and ask, have we wandered off the mission? Are we aiming at the wrong target? Have we missed something somewhere? we got to ask the question, (laughs) are we developing older brother syndrome? It's an actual clinical term, actually. Just kidding. What is older brother syndrome? Older brother syndrome is when we call ourselves Christians, but we miss the mission. What does that sound like? What does that look like in 2022? I'll give you a couple of symptoms. We'll see if anybody relates to these. Symptom number one, you prioritize your preferences over other people. You prioritize your preferences over other people. In other words, you mutter. (laughs) Remember that word? Here's what muttering sounds like. I don't like this song. I didn't like the last one either. Why don't they play the old songs? Why is it so dark in here? Why is it so loud in here? Why is it so cold in here? I don't know if I like this. Now listen, (laughs) I'm not saying you can't have preferences. We all have preferences. I have preferences and not all mine get met either. But it's when our preferences distract us from the mission that they become a problem. And maybe you didn't know this, so let me just tell you. We have a whole team of people here who obsess over every inch of our campuses and over every single minute of our services. That's all they think about. They plan every single detail to a T. Why do they do that? So that if a younger brother or a younger sister comes home to one of our services, they feel welcomed. They know that we were expecting them. They join the celebration. That's why. If you want to have an amazing, I mean, remarkable spiritual experience one time, I invite you, or I challenge you to invite someone to come with you to a service who is not a church person. Someone who's not familiar with everything that we do. Invite them to come with you, and believe me, you'll see everything that we do on Sunday morning completely different. In a good way. In a good way. It'll rock your world. You'll never be the same after that. So I invite you to have that experience. Symptom number two. You care more about comfort than you do about compassion. Now this one's a real easy litmus test. Imagine this happens one morning, right? You show up for church. Maybe it happened to you this morning. I don't know. 
You show up for church, you get your parking spot, you walk in, drop the kids off, get your coffee, got your donut. You walk in the auditorium and <gasps> some other family. You know what I'm about to say. <laughs> some other family had the audacity to sit in your seats. What do you feel in that moment? Right? Do you get angry? Do you get confused? I don't know where we're supposed to sit. There's only a thousand seats in here. What do we do? <laughs> or do you celebrate the fact that somebody new came to church that weekend? Right? Here's the truth. None of us know who or how long somebody has been praying on their knees for that family to be sitting in those seats. Believe me when I tell you, there will never be a moment when God or the leadership team of this church looks around at our attendance and says, okay, we have enough. Close the doors. We will always make room for new people. We will always celebrate when they show up. And if we run out of chairs, we'll buy more. And if we run out of space, we'll build more. It's happened before. We'll do it again. You get my point? Why do we do this? Because we want to keep our hearts in line with the fathers. Peter said this very thing challenging us to take the heart of the Father when it comes to welcoming new people. He says this, but he, God, is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but who? Everyone to come to repentance. If everyone's coming, we're going to need to make some more room. And there's a good chance you're going to show up one weekend and someone's going to be sitting in your seat. And if they do, I hope you celebrate them and thank them for sitting there. Sound good? <laughs> All right. Symptom number three, our last one. You base your value on comparison instead of on Christ. And this is exactly what the older brother did. He got up on his soapbox and he threw a temper tantrum and he bragged about how good he was as compared to how awful his younger brother was. This is actually another detail in the painting. If you can pull that painting up again, this is supposed to be the older brother in the, in the picture, right? Notice how he's higher than the younger brother. Why did he do that? Why did he paint it that way? Because the younger brother looked up from the pit when he repented. But the older brother is looking down in condemnation at him. And we can't do that. Because the fact of the matter is we've all been the younger brother. Romans 3 says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Compared to Jesus, none of us have room to brag or boast. So there it is, older brother syndrome. Pretty harsh, isn't it? If any of those things resonate with you in any way, I want you to hear how Jesus finishes this story. Verse 31, last two verses. My son, the father said, talking to the older brother, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But don't you see? We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, he's still your brother. This brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost, and he is found. Do you know what the cure for older brother syndrome is? It's to share the heart of the father. And God's report card, you guys, only has two categories, lost or found. And his heart breaks for lost people. He longs for all of his lost sons and daughters to come home with him. If we want to have a heart for God, and I hope we do, right? That's why we're here. If we want to have a heart for God, then every one of us has to understand and embrace the lesson Jesus taught that day. That a heart for God is a heart for lost people. 
A heart for God is a heart for lost people. And here's what the best news is. When we have a heart for lost people, it will change everything about our faith journey. It'll blow the roof off of it. It'll change everything about what this journey towards Jesus looks and feels like. You want to be part of the greatest story ever told? Have a heart for lost people. You want to be part of the greatest mission in history? Have a heart for lost people. You want to have a faith journey that is fully alive and passionate and exciting? Have a heart for lost people. You want to make a difference and leave an impact and leave a legacy in this world? Have a heart for lost people. A heart for God is a heart for lost people. And the choice is ours. Here's what's interesting about how the story ends. It stops right there. That's the final verse. We'll never know if the older brother ever came to the party or not. Jesus leaves it open-ended, which means we get to decide the end of the story. So it leaves the question, who are you in the story of the father with two lost sons? Who are you in this story? Some of us here, we are the younger brothers. All right? We've been doing life our own way. We're just sick and tired of being sick and tired. <laughs> We're lost. It's time to repent. It's time to change direction, to follow God's plan for your life. It's time to come home to the Father. And if that is you, guys, I promise you, your decision to come home to the Father will be the greatest single decision you ever make. I encourage you. I applaud you. If that is you today, I encourage you. I need you to do two things before you leave here today. Number one, tell somebody out loud that you made a decision to follow Jesus. Tell the person who brought you, tell someone at the welcome desk, but tell somebody out loud, today was my day to turn around and come back home. Second thing you need to do before you leave here today, you need to sign up to be baptized. The first step in your faith journey is to declare publicly God's new direction for your life by getting baptized and to celebrate that moment with a couple hundred of your closest friends. This is the t-shirt you get when you get baptized at Easter. We're doing baptisms in every service next weekend. Don't leave here today before you sign up to get baptized. But some of us aren't the younger brothers, are we? Some of us have been the older brother. We're found, but somewhere along the way, we started aiming at the wrong target, and we missed the mission. And if that's you, I want to encourage you to embrace and engage in the mission to make more and better followers of Jesus. Maybe it's time for you to trade in your report card for a list of names. This is our list of names in Pewaukee. We call all of these our ones. This is one of the walls on our campus. Every name on this wall is someone who does not yet have a relationship with the Father. But they do have a relationship with someone at Pewaukee. So we keep these list of names in front of us so that our hearts stay in line with the Father's heart. Jesus said the Father kept his eyes on the road, waiting for the Son to come home. So we keep our eyes on these names, waiting, praying, anticipating the day that they come home and we can celebrate. And so if you've been the older brother, your next step is to find a one. Find someone, identify someone in your life who you want so badly to meet Jesus and to do life with faith as the centerpiece. And I know what some of you are thinking, can you have more than one? Yes, I have like nine, all right? Identify someone in your life who you want so badly to find Jesus. Lock their name in your head 
And I want you to do two things. First step is to pray for them. Commit to praying for that person or persons every single day. A heart for God is a heart for lost people. Prayer is your first step. The fastest way to change our hearts is always through sincere and consistent prayer. So number one, pray for them every day. Number two, invite them to come with you to Easter next weekend. We throw a party every weekend around here, but guys, Easter is the Super Bowl. We are going to go above and beyond every detail to make sure every younger brother and younger sister that comes here next weekend is going to feel welcomed and celebrated and loved. And it's going to be awesome. So I encourage you, whoever that person is for you, make the call this week and invite them to come with you to Easter. Now for all of us here today, everyone in the room and watching online and all my friends in Pewaukee, if you call God your father, we're going to take our last two minutes together and we're going to connect with him through communion. You should have gotten one of these on your way in. If you didn't, at both campuses, we've got some at the back of the room. If you're at home, grab some bread and some juice. We're going to take this together this morning. What is communion? Communion is a moment when followers of Jesus do two things. We remember and we celebrate. We remember who we were when we were separated from the Father. We remember what that felt like, what that looked like. We remember that moment when we came home. And the second thing we do is we celebrate the sacrifice that Jesus made so that we could come home and be welcomed and forgiven. And once again, be in relationship with our Father. So go ahead and open up the top and pull out the styrofoam wafer cracker thing. <laughs> this represents Jesus' body. Before Jesus died and rose again, he told his followers, I want you to eat this bread, and when you do, I just want you to remember me. Remember that my body was broken for you. Go ahead and eat it. And then he held up a cup, and again he told his followers, when you drink this cup, this represents my blood that was spilled for you. And when you drink it, I want you to remember that I did this for you, so you can be forgiven and be welcomed back into the Father's arms. Go ahead and drink it now. And let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for this story that you have preserved for thousands of years so that all of us could sit here today and be taught about who you are and what your heart is really like. God, we thank you that you are a loving, kind, gracious, and compassionate Father. God, we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your redemption. God, we just thank you that you wrapped your arms around every single one of us when we were lost, but we decided to come home. Thank you for the welcome that you gave us to be in your family. And God, as a church right now, we pray for every single name on that wall in Pewaukee. And we pray for every name in all of our hearts and minds right now. All of your ones who are still separated from you, God, we pray for every single one of them because we know that you love them and you long for them to come home. So God, please break our hearts for them like yours is. Keep their names on our hearts as we pray for them and invest in them and invite them to enjoy life with you, God. We pray for the moment that they all turn around and come home and we look forward to that celebration. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.